five, scores! Rick Five. We've decided to get ourselves back in the game again with our podcast. Rick Five. Probably the craziest story that you're ever going to hear about hockey. We're going to be coming back to you on a regular basis. You are listening to Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan. Hello, Canada and hockey fans of the United States and Newfoundland. And an extra big hello to Canadian servicemen overseas. Welcome, everyone, to episode 51 of the Squid and Ultimate Leaf Fan Show. I'm Mike Wilson, the Ultimate Leaf Fan, and joining me as always, my winger, Ricky Squid Vibe. Squid, how's things uh, in the falls these days? Please tell me they really didn't like the falls up in Montreal Colors the other day. And if they did, I hopefully you went and pulled the plug on that. Well, I tried to. <laughs> and I really wanted to, but uh, I couldn't get close enough. <laughs> and I didn't. I didn't know where the switch was either. Ah, no, I told you, you got to. You got to pull some. You got to pull some strings there. Get Ludzi or somebody. Get some of the politicians to help you. Well, Squid, our guest today, good guy, born in Regina, moved to Toronto, played minor hockey, spent three years with the Peterborough Peets, was drafted 48th overall by the Leafs in 1978, and would enjoy 11 year pro career. But his biggest battle in life is a fight with ALS. ALS, which he passionately speaks about on today. Please welcome Mark Curtin. Kurtz, how's it going? It's going great, guys. And listen, I really appreciate the uh, the opportunity to uh, to speak about this and stuff, and and have a chat with you guys. It's awesome. Thanks for inviting me. No, it's, it's an honor to have you on with us. Uh, now you're still, but first off, most importantly, you're still working in the real estate game, I believe. How's the is the market still hot in the Toronto area? Oh yeah, it's on fire. I'm actually out in the Oakville area, but uh, uh, it's incredible when COVID hit. Uh, you would have thought that the market would have uh, would have dumped a little bit, but it didn't. It actually got stronger. Uh, once once people realized that they could go and look at houses with uh, with masks and gloves, uh, and, and the protocol got down, you know what? It just started going crazy. And and for me personally, um, uh, as, as Steve Simmons so eloquently said uh, in his article a couple weeks ago. Um, you know, he said, really, the COVID kind of landed on my lap because I don't have the ability now to walk. So, um, you know, people are calling past clients and they're sending me pictures and they know I know the product. And so I'm, I'm doing it all uh, virtually and I, I'm, you know, I'm pricing houses and uh, doing offers and what have you. So nothing's really changed. They just want to make sure I can think and I look OK and whatever. Right. So <laughs> you look great to us, Kurt. So, I mean, at the, before we get to your hockey career, which is a good one, and uh, we want to talk about all of that, Scott and I want to talk about a subject, obviously, we just mentioned here at ALS. Everybody, if you don't know by now, you have it. You're a very strong voice for awareness of this crippling disease known more by the name of Lou Gehrig's. First off, Kurt, for listeners, what, ex- what exactly is ALS, Lou Gehrig? You know what? There, there's a couple different versions of ALS. Uh, to put it simple, Uh, 95% of the people that have ALS have what's called sporadic. And that's what I have. Uh, What uh, what, uh, Snowy has in Calgary, the assistant GM, is uh, genetic. All right. So it runs through his family, his uncles, his cousins, and what have you. Now, they have had a breakthrough in in his type of ALS, which is phenomenal. And that's why, I mean, after a year, he's actually improving. Uh, so it's phenomenal, but it has nothing to do with the type I have. They have no cure for what I have. But what it basically does, guys, is uh, it attacks your uh, motor neurons and, uh, and and your motor neurons that uh, uh, die over time. And uh, and, and it uh, takes away your muscle um, uh, and you lose muscle movement. And in my case, it went from uh, right bicep to right arm to left arm to left leg to right leg. And uh, eventually what happens is it, it gets into your front and it affects your speech. I have a lot of friends that I have ALS that barely can talk. And uh, then you're swallowing, then you're breathing and uh, you're, you're basically paralyzed. And, uh, um, you know, living in a glass coffin is what they refer to. Now, the lifeline is two to five years on average. But there's guys that have lived 10, 15, and uh, between the three of us, I, I like that uh, category a lot of fucking better, I can tell you. I hear you on that one. Squid? Squid? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, God. So what, what, 
you know, what was your life like before ALS, Kurt? So obviously, uh, I mean, you're in a real estate business. Uh, you know, take us through, yeah. you know, leading up to that. Well, you know, I, I, my, my favorite Zen, as it is yours as well, is, uh, you know, I, I just absolutely love driving up to Greystone, where I was a member. And, uh, um, you know, just to be on that course and, and, and I could play that course every day and never get tired of it. I just loved it so much. That's the biggest, uh, one of the biggest things I should say personally and selfishly that I'm going to miss. Um, and I, I, I recognized that a couple of days ago when I was out there for a men's night fundraising and seeing all the guys again, how much I missed it. But, uh, you know, the simple things, guys, just like getting in your car and going for a coffee for crying out loud. Yeah. Like you got like giving up your car, you, you know, uh, it was such a, a shocker. And then, of course, not being able to do anything with the kids, even though my kids were older. Taylor's 29, Adam's 27, and he's a chiropractor now. And Sarah's 16. You know, it, it's I can't do much. Right. So um, I think I, I so. So it's a real it's a real life change. But uh, and as far as condition goes, I was in pretty good shape. So where this came from, I have no idea. It wasn't like I was doing something I shouldn't do that could cause something, you know, but so, it, it is what it is. So just on those lines, Kurtz, when did you realize something physically wasn't right? I remember exactly to the day almost. It was, it was in March uh, 2015, and I was lying on a beach uh, in Bahamas, in Paradise Island, Lisa, Sarah, and I. And my right bicep was firing like crazy and way more than it would be after a workout. And, and of course, I didn't have a workout or I, you know, and, but I but you know what? I, I just started drinking coffee for the first time in my life about three weeks before that. And uh, and we're talking, you know, 50, 58 years old. I never had a sip of coffee. Yeah. Right. And so I thought, well, maybe it's oh, the ca- wow. maybe it's the caffeine. Yeah. Right. And, and so I'm thinking it's got to be the caffeine. But then all of a sudden I was golfing when I got home and my right hand slipped off my club. I'm thinking that's kind of weird. And then I went for chicken wings one day and I was late for an appointment. So I ran to the car and I caught my toe on a curb. Right. Yeah. And I fell into my Mercedes with my right arm and put a dent in the driver's seat, the driver's side, like a huge dent. And I thought, that's weird. Then I fell a couple more times. So you see, all these things started to add up. And so, you know, at the end of the day, I ended up uh, uh, going through about uh, three years of testing everywhere. I went to the Mayo Clinic. I had blood work done. I had infusions. I had rheumatologists, EMGs. And finally, in uh, March of 2018, three years later, uh, they told us. Now, I, I thought I had Lyme disease, too, because I had a positive test result for that. And that's a, uh, something that's very, it mirrors ALS, all the same symptoms, uh, but it was a false positive. So, so 2018 was the tough, the real tough day. So how did you initially deal with the news when you got it? It was tough. Like we, uh, Lisa and I were, we, we kind of thought, you know, maybe it is this, right? And uh, so we were sitting in this room at Sunnybrook and and uh, he came in and he didn't he cut to the chase, man. He just came right out and said it. So I kind of sat back and Lisa, you know, obviously got very emotional. Yeah. Um, but it was it was it was almost uh, surreal to hear something like that. And so when we got out of there, I, uh, you know, I, I was just thinking, how are we going to tell the kids? Right. So. You know, but thank goodness they were older. It was harder for Sarah, obviously. But, um, you know, we we told the kids. And then that night, I actually looked in the mirror and I said, okay, I got a couple of choices here. I can either face it or I can just, uh, you know, crawl into a corner and get depressed, right? So I promised myself I would face it straight on. I wouldn't change. I don't want anybody changing around me. I don't want pity. I don't want people being feeling sorry for me. I'm going to chirp people. I want to get chirped. You know, I, I don't want to change. And and so I just decided to hit it head on. And I, 
I figured that 99% might be mentally with this because if you get depressed and stuff, you probably mm-hmm. sink faster. So, so I, I've been positive. I don't let any negativity into my DNA. And, and uh, there's still guys that, you know, from that point on, I could still golf a little bit. Fucking no one give me any fucking strokes. Like I, I could hardly like Gabby. I played with Boudreaux and Gabby gave me, Gabby wouldn't even give me a stroke. So, so I beat him by two, by t- I beat him by two uh, strokes like Greystone. And that was, that was pretty well, almost my last round. So I, I keep riding him about that. But anyway, so that's what I personally, that's how I decided that I was going to deal with this. And then I went quiet, guys. Mike, I, I went quiet on it. I, yeah. I was worried about my business. And then I was in Peterborough for a reunion uh, of the Pete's uh, Memorial Cup team. And, I, and a newspaper guy uh, interviewed me. And uh, I wasn't thinking. And I told him everything. And I got home. And Lisa goes, when did you decide to tell people? I said, I didn't. I just told a little newspaper. And she goes, Fuck, you ever heard of social media? And I said, oh. And then my phone started lighting up like a Christmas tree. I had about 25 calls. So then I thought, you know what? There must be a reason for that. Let's go out with it. And so here I am today. Yeah. You know? Great. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, you mentioned your kids, uh, Mark. And I. so how did your family and, and your friends and everybody cope with what you were going through? Um. Well, you know, they're getting more used to it now, obviously. But at the start, it was kind of hard because uh, this thing goes in phases, right? And, uh, um, you know, the impact uh, on me is obviously pretty tough, but the impact on them is too. And uh, the reality is um, when someone has ALS, it's not just them. It's, it's the it's the family too, because they're kind of the extension of me, Right. So if I need things, they have to be on call all the time around me. Uh, but it, but it was, you know, it was humbling for all of us, especially me. And I don't know how the third period is going to play out. But, you know, I found that when I was, when I'm up, up, upbeat, they're upbeat. When I'm down, they're down. So I got to, I got to stay up and stay positive and, uh, and uh, you know, for everybody. Um, but one of the, one of the, I, I guess the three rules I live by is, is uh, you know to have a have a great family, which I do, and uh, you know I, I do have a strong faith, and uh, um, uh, you know and, and and obviously based on those that video program, pretty strong support in the sports world too. I mean, a lot of guys have have uh, you know come to help the cause, right? Well, I was going to ask. I think you've just answered it from. I was going to ask you, knowing how quickly this can move through your body. How do you how how have you handled the adversities? But I would suggest probably with your athletic background and competitive fire, you weren't taking a backseat to anything. Yeah, you know what though, guys, it's uh, someone told me it'd be about two hundred thousand uh, dollars by the time you're you know from beginning to end of this thing. And I said, "There's no way, fuck, there's no way." You know what? It is. I mean, this thing's twenty five grand that I'm sitting in, and 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 you know what? We had to do renovations of the bathroom and bedroom and. And uh, I, you know, there's a Hoyer list that looks like a fishing rod. You can see over my shoulder a bit. And you know what this thing does? It, ho- it You put a sling on and it hoists you in the air. And this four-wheel machine, uh, the caregiver pushes it over to the bed, side of the bed, or pushes it on the can, or pushes you on your chair and lowers you. It's just like a fishing rod with a big tuna on the end. <laughs> and, and, and you know what, though? You don't think of these things. But at the end of the day, you, you have all these little things and you got to stay ahead of the curve. Like, like even the bathroom, like, you know, on the toilet. Think about it. You can't. I got no hands. Right. So I had to I have a bidet seat. And so I sit there and when I have to get on my feet, it has a lift. You push this button and it lifts you right up to your feet. Or if I'm watching TV, I have a chair that puts me on my feet. Or my bed moves around. See, so you need all these yeah. things. You have to stay ahead of the curve, right? Yeah. Squid. So, you know, yeah. It's crazy. Crazy, crazy. Yeah, that's uh, 
It's, it's pretty wild. I mean, uh, come when you think about it. But but you were a professional athlete for eleven years, which uh, we'll get to in, in in a little bit. But uh, several athletes since Lou Gehrig have developed ALS. Do you feel there's a connection between um, being an athlete and ALS? When I first got this, you know, the temptation was to play the concussion card, right? Which, which all of us, you know, think about. And, uh, but I sat down and in about a two hour time period, I listed 68 former athletes that have had this. And, and half of them were NFL football players. There was some incredible names on there. And so then I, I talked to the uh, head of research for ALS Canada and we talked about it. And here's my, my thinking on this. I, I do believe that concussions are a risk factor for sure. I do believe that there is some correlation there, but you got to remember there's lots of people that have ALS that have never been concussed too. Yeah. Right. And so I think what they're doing now with the research money is they're looking at elite, elite athletes and seeing if there's anything conclusive. All right. Mm -hmm. But I could not go on record and say, this is why I got it. It's a risk factor for sure. But I mean, in football, there was a guy, uh, Steve McMichael, that uh, was an absolute warrior on the Bears defense in the 80s. Mm -hmm. You should watch his YouTube video. I watched it a couple of days ago. It's powerful. He's got this now. And uh, and then the guy that caught Joe Montana's catch in the Super Bowl called the catch, right? Uh, Dwight, uh, I can't Clark. remember his last. Clark. There's a lot Clark. of people yeah. that you don't know that have this thing, and you read their names, you go, "Wow!" So, so I think I think that uh, I think that um, there may be something there, but I, I don't think you can blame it on that. Now, have you been in touch with any of the other athletes? I have a little bit here and there. I've reached out to some, um, but I, I, I think most of my reach out or reach out to me is, is people that have ALS. Like I'll get a call from a friend and say, Hey, my buddy got ALS and he doesn't know what to do. He's scared. Can you talk to him? Like I, I remember Roger years ago, uh, right before he died, uh, he had a list of three pages of names. And I said, Roger, what are all those names and numbers for? And he said, these are all people that have cancer that I'm going to speak to. And so I always remembered that. So I have a list and uh, I've reached out to a whole bunch of people just to give them tips on equipment, try to build them up a bit. Uh, I even had a call from a, a guy in my old high school, grade seven, I ran relay with, scared to death, you know, scared to death. So, Rightfully so. you know, you got to help them out, right? And, and do the best you can to, to prop them up, right? It's great. So, so, Curtis, we know there's no cure for ALS as of, as we speak. Well, at least maybe not for all the different kinds. But uh, is there any new developings happening, that, uh, developing things that are coming on? Yeah, there's only uh, two treatments right now that are out there. It's called Rylatec and Adarivone. Adarivone is a Japanese drug, and I've been on it for – uh, about 28 months now. And so 10 days a month, my, uh, I get sighted in my arm and then my daughter comes down, believe it or not, and gives me the hour uh, IV, right, or infusion. And I have no side effects from it. Um, but the question is, does it work? And this is what we struggle with because when I started doing it, my legs are pretty good and now they're not. Uh, and so my wife says, I wonder what it would have been like if you didn't do anything. Maybe your body just is slow through this thing. But then my argument is, if I didn't go on it, maybe I'd be like Steve Gleason right now, right? And, and not be able to breathe and all this stuff. So as, well, as far as I'm concerned, I'm staying on it uh, because it's staying out of my front for now. And I'll stay on it as long as I can. Now, there is a drug coming down the pipe now called Amex that's uh, supposed to be help as well. But there's no cure, nothing, nothing more than really what we have. There's 160 uh, drug companies around the world that are in the ALS space right now, and 80 promising trials going on around the world. So sooner or later, they're going to hit the magic potion. Uh, but the biggest problem, guys, 
is that when they hit it, do you know how long it takes to get through uh, FDA in the States, through Health Canada, mm-hmm. through the province, to me? Two years. Are you fucking kidding? Two yeah. years. And we got two to five years, most people. And so our big ask from the government is let's create faster pathways so that when something comes along the pipe, get it into the ALS bodies pronto, right? So that's the one ask from the government. The others, obviously, the awareness, and then the others, research money. Those are the three biggies that we're always asking for. So right? those are the three big things you're looking for into the future for, for future development of for looking for a cure, a cure that's, for this? That, that's right, Mike. And this Amex drug is going to be a good test for the government to see how fast they can get it through. So we're watching it really, really closely now. Mm-hmm. But see, I'm a member of two groups. I'm a member of ALS Canada, and I'm a member of ALS Action Canada, which is a patient-led group. Okay. And, and, and boy, guys, I'm telling you, if you met these guys on ALS Action, because I'm on with them all the time on the Zooms, what a group of, of powerful people battling. It's unbelievable. I know. So, Kurt's Major League Baseball uh, named Lou Gehrig Day on June second, and uh, as Lou Gehrig Day, why is it? Why was that so important? Well, my feeling has always been since I got this and did research and stuff, I call it the forgotten illness, because when I got this, guys, I didn't know what ALS was. I'm sure nobody, like, all of us think, well, is it MS or is it ALS? Like we kind of know what Parkinson's is now, but nobody really knew what ALS was. And so these two guys or two brothers that, that approached MLB uh, to get all the teams on side for June 2nd is massive. Absolutely huge for us because it finally puts it on the map and, and, my, my feeling is, is now that it's on the map, and I would say 31 teams did a phenomenal job mm-hmm. with the promotion of that day. And I'm not going to mention the team that didn't, but we know who that is. And uh, you know what? I'm hoping that the NFL takes a look at this and says, geez, look what MLB did. I, I know he's one of their guys, Lou Gehrig, but – we got a lot of guys that have ALS. So maybe we should have a Sunday for, for uh, ALS. So I'm going to get in touch with those two brothers and see if we can move towards the NFL and see if we can't get some more awareness from the NFL. Well, uh, going know. to all the leagues. All the leagues. Well, I know, but going chronologic, chronologic order, the NFL should be next. Uh, but, but think, uh, to, to summarize it, um, uh, Squid, to answer your question, uh, to have our story heard and have it resonate right across, right? Right across North America uh, has never happened before for this disease. And so I'm hoping that uh, some of the barriers that were up there will crumble and we'll have a better chance to uh, move forward uh, with awareness and, uh, and treatments and what have you. So it was a pretty big day for us. No hey, Kurt, question. Kurt, let me ask you this. How many, how many cases you may not know this. How many cases on average would come about uh, in a calendar year throughout North America? Well, I can state? tell you that. I can tell you that because there's about yep. 3,000 in Canada that are afflicted with this. 1,000 die every year and 1,000 come on stream. It's like pretty, pretty set. That's and then in, in uh, let me think now, in the world, I think there's over 500,000 now. But it's on the increase. Isn't that interesting? It's on the increase for some reason. I don't know why, but, but, uh, you know, I, I, when you, when you, when you look at the big picture, I have no pain guys, right? No pain, nothing wrong mentally. Although you might think different, than that, but, <laughs> okay. but, you, but you know what, but, but, but think about it. Think about it. I mean, there's worse things, right? There's worse yep. things. Oh, absolutely. Now, now I may change my tune a few years from now, if I, I fucking, uh, I can't eat or something like that. But right now, you know, it's worse. I, I can just order everybody around all the time. Squid, <laughs> you're up. You know. is, there one, is there one thing that you want 
people to know about ALS, Kurtz? Um, I, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I would like people to now that they sort of know what it is because of Lou Gehrig Day and the June month and stuff. And uh, I just, it, it, yeah, people need to get loud. When they hear something like a, like a petitions out there uh, to try and get a drug through, uh, or uh, drug trials trying to get into Canada uh, and having trouble or whatever. We just need the general public to get behind us when, we, when we're moving towards an ask that's important. And I think that's the biggest thing um, because the government is, is a real frustration right now. And to give you a couple examples, um, you know, back in uh, 2017, uh, there was somebody in the house in Ottawa that had ALS and he battled for about three years and worked every day and stuff. And then they lost him. He died and they, they put a motion through called Motion 105 that said that they would promote ALS awareness, do fundraising, all that stuff. They haven't done nothing. Zero, the government in the last, uh, since 2017. And then a petition, 26,000, Squid, I think you signed it, 26,000 people signed a petition um, to uh, the government to try and create faster pathways through, right, for people like us when, when a drug's available. And you know what? It's there, but the, it's almost like the government's ignoring it, you know? So we just need to keep hammering and hammering and Squid, do you know that the 25 or actually it's a 28 video Twitter program that I've got going that you just put in? By the way, you got 9,000 views, so you're doing good on yours. <laughs> but, 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 but you know what? Um, though just you, you would think that the Ministry of Health or somebody in the Liberal uh, caucus up, up in Ottawa, you think somebody would reach out because they're on – they're tagged on every tweet, not a peep out of them. Mm-hmm. And we're not talking about slouches that are on these videos, right? I mean, you, you got some pretty big names on these videos. So I'm not done with the government yet. Yeah, when I'm when I'm finished with this month, people they would I, know I'm putting too, them all like together. Kurtz, I mean, what's what's that? Yeah. What's that? I said people that they would know. Oh uh, yeah, they know every you know, every you know, every one of them, uh, Squid, yeah. and, and so. Uh, once, once I'm finished with this, I've got a couple people that are going to do some stitching on those and do some editing and stuff. And we're going to put one hell of a video together with, uh, with my story with it. And I'm going right to Ottawa. I'm going to every politician I can find. Well, that's what you have to do. I know we've been involved. Deb and I have been involved in the charity fundraising world for a long time. I don't know if you, if you check our website, Kurt, you'll see some of the stuff we've done. And I know on a personal note, Deb's best friend suffered from ALS. So that one hit close to home with us as well. And we did a couple of things for them, but we did have some government people around and said, listen, we'd like to take this to another level because, you know, we have a pretty big audience using NHL players and we have a pretty big network. Never heard from them. I said, we'll do something and get the name out there and we'll raise some money and we'll help you guys. And nobody ever contacted us. Well, I know. And we've raised, we've raised about, uh, We've raised about 75000 in the month of June for ALS Canada. And I've got about 10000 raised at Sunnybrook with more coming in, um, which, which is pretty good uh, for a start. But like I said, once I put this whole thing together, um, you know, we'll, we'll see what they say then. But uh, we're even talking, we present every week, we present to somebody like the ALS Action Group, right? We present to somebody. It was the Conservatives last week. It's going to the Ministry of Health, uh, or sorry, uh, Health Canada was a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. So we just keep packing away, packing away, packing away, and then see what happens. But Squid, you nailed it. Like, we got a lot of big names on these videos. So it's not, and they're getting bigger. Like, you have, like, Adam Graves has got one now, and Jamie Campbell I just put out today. His was really good, and not as good as yours, of course, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and who else is, I, I got about three or four, James Duthie. So you know what? Okay. All the Leaf captains and Don, Ron McLean and Don Cherry didn't put those out back to back. They probably didn't know each other. Each other <laughs> <was on them. laughs> 
I, I didn't tell him that each one was on there. Well, now, Chris, let's go back. Let's go back a little bit and give the listeners a little bit uh, above your past. And a lot of them will know you, but you're born in Regina. Take us through the, you know, you're born in Regina, but you moved to Toronto. You played minor hockey, Wexford. You moved on to play three years at the Peets. What got to the Memorial Cup final? Just talk about leading up to all that and how it all went about. Well, what, what's kind of funny is, uh, is, is Ron McLean, you know, obviously he's from Oakville and yeah. I've golfed with him a few times. And, you know, it was good and I know him pretty well. But uh, I knew that he had those T-shirts, uh, Kurt N's ALS and stuff. Yeah. But I wasn't – I was on the computer doing some real estate, actually. Yeah. And the game was on uh, going into overtime against the Habs. And I could hear my kids in the background laughing and going, grab a camera, grab your phone. And I'm so I looked at the other screen and I saw Ron McLean holding up the shirt in the overtime. Did you see that, Mike? No, I didn't see it. Squid, did no. you? Okay, well, no, I, I, have a, see it. I have a video of it. It was about 45 seconds long yeah. with Kevin BX and, the, and Rudy in the background, and I forget who was beside him. And he held it up, and he went into this little um, whatever. Uh, but I had to laugh because um, I'm in his book, right, in, in Regina. Like, you know how he went cities yeah. and Regina. And he got some dates mixed up, and he says – Oh, this is a very good friend of mine, uh, Mark Kerr, and what have you. And and then he went on to say his father, Les, um, created a gym in the garage when he was 13 out in Regina. Well, he got it all mixed up. I was 16 and I was in Toronto, right? (laughs) Because my buddies are calling and saying, you were lifting weights heavy at 13 years old? And I said, well, you know, not really. I said, Ron kind of mixed that up a little bit. But the point... That, that Ron was making was awareness. And do you know how many people watched that? 4.8 million. So that was a huge reach out. And thanks to him, uh, that really set things going. So that matter of fact, they did more in that 45 seconds than the Blue Jays did in four hours. Well, so now pick up from there. Now you get you in Toronto, you're a 16 year old playing in the Wexford organization. Then talk about heading off to Peterborough and get into a World Cup final. Well, I, I was uh, the the background there uh, that people may not be aware of is that uh, when I was playing junior B with Wexford, um, uh, my dad talked me into actually it was the year before that midget. He was talking me into writing all the hockey schools around town and out of town, see if I could get a summer job, right? As a gopher or whatever. And the only guy that responded was Roger. So Roger Nielsen came to the house, met my parents. Next thing you know, I'm living at his cottage at 15 years old, uh, running, you know, tying skates and 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 and, and uh, going and getting lunches for Coley Campbell and some of the pros. Yeah. And then having to go back because I didn't get the lunch right. And uh, it was unbelievable. So, I did that for three summers, right? And then the third summer, Roger drafted me to Peterborough. So that's how that happened. And then that first year in Peterborough, we won like eight games. And uh, we weren't very good. And Dick Todd was was the trainer. And Dave Shan was our best player on defense. And he played, he used to play about 55 minutes a game, right? (laughs) And uh, we, we weren't very good. And Greg Millen was in net. And uh, so that first year we were so bad. And I was telling the story the other day. I remember going up to Sault Ste. Marie and playing Sioux and they were loaded Sault Ste. Marie and Sudbury and Sault Ste. Marie, every time they scored this big greyhound in the ceiling would start to go across this chain. Right. And we knew we'd lose by 10 or 12 goals for sure. hundred <laughs> percent. So Roger said, I overheard him telling Dick Todd to climb up the stairs up there and put this padlock on that greyhound. So sure, sure enough, they score in the first 30 seconds and the thing goes to change, 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 stops. And of course, the whole Sault Ste. Marie bench is looking up and we're laughing and they start laughing, too. And it was and so we, we were down 11, nothing. And Roger pulled the goalie and we scored. <laughs> but we were brutal that year. So, so Squid, I was just going to in closing on that year. Um we were so bad that Roger made us stay an extra month and we had to play 12 games against all the little towns north of Peterborough. 
And you know what that's like? Going in there and, and the barn is full and heckling and screaming, oh, that guy's not very good for the Pete's. And, and people throwing, like, Roger made us play 12 games because of that year. How'd you guys do? Did you lose any? I don't, you know what? It's a blur in my mind. I don't even want to remember it. I don't even remember. Uh, it's funny you mentioned the Sioux the Greyhound because I remember coaching the Ice Dogs and we had a horrible year. And we were in Sudbury where they have the wolf that does the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we, I think we lost 12 2, I think, that night. I, I think I got kicked out for throwing all the sticks on the ice, but. Um, you think? Was a coach there? Uh, yeah, no, I I did actually. <laughs> Bert Templeton was the coach, and he's putting out his number one power play when they're up like eight nothing, nice. and it just kept piling on him. And nice. I all I kept seeing was that goddamn wolf going across the the, uh, the top of the building, and all I wanted to do was throw something at it and break it or something, but but I didn't think I could hit it. Yeah, there was a lot of, lot of stories that first year. But you know what? We got through the first year. And then the second year, we were a little better. And then the third year, Gary Green took over. And we were real good. I mean, we had a good team. And, and I remember at Christmas time, we played at the Maple Leaf Gardens because the Marlies, it might have been the last year the Marlies played at Maple Leaf Gardens, actually. And I remember Keith Acton and Keith Crowder and I sitting beside each other. And we had heard rumors that Gary Green had picked up a guy to help our stretch run, right? And I knew we were we were we were a really talented team, but we did we needed a little more toughness because we had to go against Al Secord and Hamilton and yeah. Ottawa had a good team. And so we heard about this guy coming from Lansing, Michigan State or whatever. And so we knew oh, we, yeah, you know where I'm going with this. <laughs> so so he comes walking in the front into the dressing room. Uh, just before we're going out for warm up, right? And he's got this big fur coat on, and and I looked at Act, and I looked at him, and I just went like this, and I went, oh! And you know what? You saw fifteen smiles uh, in the in the <laughs> locker room, and you know what it was? It was Jeff Brubaker, right? Yeah. And big Big yeah. Brew came in, and he looked like that guy Buford Pusser from Walking Tall, <laughs> and he came in, and he's got the yeah. squinty eyes. And, he, and he's going around shaking everybody's hand. And, of course, uh, Acton looks at me and says, fuck, he says he's going to be on your line, isn't he? And I said, I said, I hope so. <laughs> so he, he was on my line, him and Crowder and I, and we were phenomenal through the playoffs and stuff. But well, that was the that, turning point. Was that, that was the turning point. 1978, yeah. And we, were, we took so uh, Ottawa to seven games, there. Hamilton to eight games, and then went to the Memorial Cup. Yeah. And won the Memorial Cup in Verdun. No, the Memorial Cup was in Sault Ste. Marie, Sudbury. And uh, we won we beat New West two games in the in the Memorial in the round robin and lost the final game. Uh, and, which was a real tough loss. We had some injuries like Mike Meeker, who was Howie Meeker's nephew, one of the best hockey players I've seen in junior. Um, and he didn't like hockey that much and he quit and went into oceanography. So and, now, uh, you know. well, Kurtz, talk about your your year there. Now, you guys are your draft year. The draft yeah. was a lot different then. I mean, it was in '79. Mm -hmm. It dropped from uh, and screwed that too. Dropped from 20 to 19. So it's a full year for you. So talk about. Was there any talk about you getting drafted or where you might end up that year? As you guys were going, yeah, obviously your team would have got a lot of attention. And then talk about draft day, or yeah, when you we, got drafted. Finally. You know what? We did have a lot of we did have a lot of attention, especially towards the end. Um, and uh, and then to have a really good Memorial Cup and make the all-star team yeah. was huge, too. Uh, but I remember sitting in the front lawn getting drafted because back then, you That's right. You know, there was you get a phone call from Jim Gregory saying, hey, we drafted you. But then Roger called like 30 seconds later and said, hey, like, be ready. And I said, for what? And he said, uh, well, for the, the media in Toronto. Like they're going to do a history on you and know about our relationship. And now I'm the guy drafting you. So he kind of gave me some heads up and tips and all that stuff. But uh, I, I, I didn't want to let him down guys. So I, I worked out like four hours a day. I was the best shape one could ever be going into that camp and, uh, and had a good camp. So, and then I went down to Moncton with EJ 
Eddie Johnson and had a good year and, and then made it the second year. So, but unfortunately, as Squid knows, um, when I got drafted there, I thought, you know what? They only need three players and they're going to win the cup here. And, and uh, I thought I was going to take Jimmy Jones spot, a little more offense, maybe whatever. And, uh, and then Harold dismantled it, unfortunately, but nobody was going to beat the Habs. Nobody yeah. right then. Yeah. So, no. you know, it, it's, uh, so it was bad timing, um, you know, for all of us at that time. But uh, um, if someone asked me what it was like being drafted by your home city, you know what? Never even bothered me a bit. That was such a veteran team, you know, and I, and I realized how comfortable it was in my first game in Boston, which was the, uh, an exhibition game. And I'm sitting beside Lanny and I first 30 seconds, Lanny McDonald and, uh, and Wenzick are blowing kisses at each other. Like Wenzick's on, and I'm going, this isn't going to be pretty. I don't think. And, and, and so, and, and, and let me back up that warm up. You guys are going to love this. That warm up, somebody hit me and my skate blade off the shot and it, it made it wobbly. So I needed a new blade. So I went off the ice in Boston. As Squid knows, that's a small rink, blue line to blue line, really small. So I, I went off the ice and I sat down waiting for uh, uh, Gunner to come in and change my blade. And I realized I was in the wrong room. I was in the Bruin room. So I, I, I got up. I got up. Because that frosty guy, the, the Bruin yeah. trainer came in and said, yeah. son, you're in the wrong room. And I, I kind of panicked, right? So I, I got up and I'm, as I was going through the, the boards back onto the ice, they were coming off the ice. Can you imagine <laughs> if I was sitting in there with Wenzick and Jonathan and all those guys coming in? Oh, my God. Lanny never if let I, me live that one I, down. If I remember... You went off in the same exit too, right? Both teams. Not in not in Boston. Yeah. In Boston, it was well, it was identical. Yeah, it was like a clone of the yeah. other side. If you're not paying attention, it's pretty easy to do. Although I don't think anybody yeah. in the history of the NHL has done it, other than me. But but <laughs> <laughs> it was really funny at the time. So, now, Kurtz, talk about your first year in the AHL, right? In, in, in New Brunswick. Oh, talk about the whole experience of being a professional hockey player. Well, I'll tell you, it, it almost didn't last long because when I got down there, there was only Rocky Sagnick, myself and Greg Hotham that were younger guys. Everybody else was 30, like Jimmy Harris and Mike Walden, you know, all the old guy, real old guys. And uh, Eddie Johnson um, took a liking to me. And I think it had something to do with our captain, Kirk Bowman and his relationship and Kirk and I worked a couple of hockey schools together. So anyways, whatever, it worked out. Uh, but I'm going to tell you the first three games were all against Portland, Maine, which was Philadelphia Flyers farm team. And squid was playing against the broad street bullies. And I was playing against 16 of those guys, right? <laughs> At least there was only four or five in Philly. So, so I didn't, I didn't really realize that until the first period. And we had two bench brawls. And, uh, and Rocky challenged their whole bench. And John Paddock and a couple of guys jumped on the ice. And away it went. And so to fast forward, the second game, there was a big brawl going on. And I had this guy, Frank Bath. Do you remember him, Squid? With a big red yeah, beard? Yeah. Big red beard, yeah. Yeah, I mean, how am I supposed I'm 172 pounds. He's like 220. So he's going around belting guys. And I said, okay, the only way I can get rid of this guy is throw him on the pile right by the bench. So I did. And he fell back and he and Eddie Johnson reached over and pinned him to the boards. And uh, and then Pat Quinn saw that. And I grabbed Linsman, my size, and Pat Quinn came over and grabbed EJ and they rolled onto the pile to center ice. And they both had pinstripe suits. I'll never forget it. And they went at it, guys. It was like not, it was like bang, 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 bang. And they were both cut. Their suits were ripped. They were sliding around. And, and all of us guys stopped to watch. <laughs> I'd never seen anything like it. So, so fast forward years later, I'm at a function, a Bell Gala. And I went up to Pat and said, Pat, you probably don't remember me, Mark Curtin, whatever. Oh, no, I remember, son. I remember. And I said, you know, Gord Stelic had a, a thing on the Fan 590 
hockey's greatest fights. And I said, I've been trying to, I was trying to get through and uh, cause I had a great one. And he goes, Oh, he says, which one was that? And, and I said, it was you and EJ center ice 1978 Moncton Coliseum. And you know what? The look on his face, he looked down at me and he said, wow. And he shook his head. He says, that was really something. Wasn't it son? <laughs> <laughs> I'll never forget that. Well, it that's was wild. And I called my dad yeah. after the second game and I said, dad, I don't know how I'm going to survive this because I've never seen anything like this before. And he said, well, that's why you worked out four hours a day so you can get through it. Yeah. But I mean, guys, <laughs> it was slap shot down there then. Yeah. Like so in, Hershey, in Hershey, yeah. in Hershey, they'd walk by our dressing room and they'd yell, kill, kill, kill. And like Daryl Sutter, my winger, looked at me, and and Sudsy says, uh, "Kurtz, you really want to go out there?" I said, "I don't want to start. I know that." <laughs> <laughs> but you know what, Squid? I don't even know how mentally we got through the, that. Like you were a lot tougher than I was. You could fight and stuff, but you know what? You really got to be uh, not that smart, eh, to, to be playing it. In those intimidation, it was crazy. Hey. Well, Kurt, that is one of the questions yeah. I was going to ask: Is how did you adjust to that? Because you're more than a big guy, you know these guys. Well, all you just be fast. You, like Dave Keon, I had the sweep check down pat. Yeah, I had some tricks that Boria taught me on how to do the can opener. Yeah, Boria taught me if you win a face off in your own end, let the center through to get the puck. And then stick your stick in there and give them a twist one way and go get the puck and away you go. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, you can't do that now. But, you know, I I just, I guess I was, uh, you know, I, I like to pride myself that I was kind of a 200-foot player. But, um, you know, it was funny. In the minors, you get 70, 75, 80 points. And you're the captain and all that stuff. And you get to the NHL and they want to make you a checker on the third or fourth line. You don't even get a chance to – to, to be offense. Only one year in Detroit, I got a chance to, uh, to, to do everything. And, you know, 19 goals in 50 games, not bad. Yeah. Like that's like a 50 or a 30 goal year, but I was on everything in Detroit. And that's because uh, Wayne Maxner sent down five guys in one uh, day after practice, get these names, uh, Peter Mahovlich, Errol Thompson, Dennis Polanis, Gilles Gilbert, and one other guy, all the Adirondack after one practice. So Dale McCourt and I were adding up all the games after. Of all, it was like 2,500 games. <laughs> so that's why I got ice time. So now – Well, you think about it, Kurt. It's like we, we talk about this so many times with different people. You know, you, you go through your hockey career – you know, minor hockey, junior, whatever it might be. And for the most part, you're one of the best players, if not the best. Yeah. Then you get to the National Hockey League, and you got to adjust because they go, well, no, i got six forwards better than you. I need you to be a third-line checking yeah. player and, yeah. and that sort of thing. And, and that happens all the time. Yeah, it does. And, you, and, and we all know, too, that – it's however you're perceived by your coach. And a lot of times, uh, you know, coming out of Peterborough, other than Iserman, but there's a lot of guys that come out of Peterborough that have that defensive checker stamped on their ass, right? And, and uh, you know, I thank Roger for so many things, but I always said to him, well, you know, I mean, uh, to be a, a checker, penalty killer, uh, face-off guy is because of you. <laughs> yes. Now, hey, Kurt, so talk about talk about in Toronto. You got the play, you got the call, you made the team, all that kind of stuff. Now, all the stuff going on around you had Jim Gregory drafted you, punch, I assume, moved you. Uh, the circus-like atmosphere going on around the club. We talk to players about this all the time. Like Ballard fighting with Imlac, Sittler and Ballard, Sittler and Imlac fighting, uh, Ballard fighting with the uh, media, all this stuff going on. Was all that lost and you just try to shrug it off? I mean you know, I was, uh, I think, I think when it, it peaked, I was probably, I was in Moncton. Yeah. I think my second year, 
because I made Toronto uh, my second year and scored on that first shot. And then uh, the next game, I lost a face-off to uh, somebody, Esposito, and I, I didn't stay with the center. I went out to the point, went back to Espo and into the net, down to the minors. So I, so I, I, I went down and had a strong second year, and I think that's uh, how I made it uh, the following, because we went to the Calder Cup, right? Yeah. And anytime you go to the Calder Cup and the minors, I would say 80% of the players are going to be in the show the following year. That's just sort of the way it works, right? But the circus um, up in Toronto, although I was aware of it, um, the real circus in Moncton started when uh, Carl Brewer came down to us first. Okay. You remember that, Squid? Yeah, I sure do. Like, he came down with us, and uh, I remember Bob Neely, who was a pretty funny guy, just, like, shaking his head. And, of course, he didn't like Carl very much, you know, and uh, uh, Carl coming back. And, of course, Carl's very first shift, someone ran him, and his helmet fell off, and he, he just stood there like the like the Mr. Clean, that commercial. <laughs> and, and, and we all just didn't know what to do with this 42 year old guy. Right. But I'll be honest, he played pretty good, he played pretty good. But then he got called up and that's when the circus started. Yeah. Right. Because all the little secrets and all that kind of stuff. So I wasn't really party to the, to the main stuff. Uh, Joe Crozier liked me a lot and that's how I made it the third year. Uh, but they didn't play me very much. I only played like three games or 11 games in the first 20 they got traded to Toronto or Detroit. I mean, well, the reason I mentioned that Kurtz is because the reason for that was because you're playing in, in, in Moncton, you're point a game basically a player. And we've talked a lot of guys from playing in the minors, whether New Brunswick, St. Catharines or New Market in the, that era you're playing, but they felt the focus was more on the team and all the circus going on around the team and wasn't going on to you guys. And it held a lot of guys back. Um, yeah, we didn't really pay a lot of attention to that. And don't forget, there wasn't 20 Leaf guys down there. It was 10 Chicago split, guys. Too. Yeah, it split. So we were always going to be pretty good down there, right? Uh, but no, we didn't pay that much attention to it. The only thing you think about when you're in the minors is as much as you want the team to do well up top, uh, you know, if there's an injury here or there, you're not you're not crying because you got a chance. <laughs> you got a chance you might go up. As a matter of fact, I got a funny story for you. Um, my, when Daryl Sittler broke his ankle, I think my second year and, uh, the call was put out to me to go up and I'm thinking like six weeks, right? At least or longer for Daryl to come back. And at the time I was living with Bruce Boudreaux and his wife, the three of us. So what do you think happens that night? I get hit by one of those broad street Portland, Maine guys. I get a Charlie horse. It turns into calcium deposit. I missed like two months, right? So I couldn't go up. So they called Gabby up. So now there's Mary and I, his wife, living in the house for like six, seven <laughs> weeks. So every time, and of course, I'm not playing. So every time Gabby would call and he says, Mary there? No, she's in the shower. Mary there? No, she's gone to bed. Is Mary there? Uh, she's preparing dinner for us tonight. I drove him insane. <laughs> I drove, I drove him crazy, and we still laugh about it today. Um, how funny that situation was! But of course, his only argument would be, "No, the call wasn't out for you to replace it. It was for me." I said, "No, it wasn't. I already know." Squid. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's hilarious. So, uh, but I mean, you, you get there, Kurt, obviously, and then, you know, you go on and play seven, many years in the National Hockey League and a uh, couple of different organizations. Is, but, you know, the, the time in Toronto must have been incredible. Uh, you know, growing up there, uh, not born there, but growing up there, playing hockey in, in the Toronto area, Meyer hockey and so, so on. But – did all the Ballard things take away from a little bit of that, a little no. luster away from that? or I don't think so because I was so excited um, about being drafted um, by a team that I, that I loved as a kid. So I kind of sheltered all that stuff out. And I, I don't know why or how, but I think if I was a more prominent player like yourself or whatever – 
it would have got to me. But because I was a little bit off the radar, it really didn't bug me. That would be a good question for Quenville because he was drafted right in front of me. There was just him and I, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, but it, no, it didn't bother me at all. The only thing that bothered me is going to the rink my third year um, and not knowing whether I was, I had to go in to see if my sweater was hanging, that old game, right? Yeah. And if your sweater's not hanging, yeah. you're headed to the gym. And uh, I remember it was Dave Burroughs, Dan Maloney, Ron Ellis, and me, the four aces. And so we'd go in, and then usually the four of us would end up in the gym. And, of course, I'd only spend like 30 seconds in there, get dressed, and I'd be at the U of T pub watching the game on TV. (laughs) But you know what? It was – they skated us. What bothered me about that, it's one thing to go in and see your sweater hanging or not hanging, but the morning skate when the guys went off, then Joe Crozier or something, they'd stay on and skate us till we fell. And, and Ronnie Ellis, I'd never heard him swear except for then. And uh, I, I just back and forth and back. I mean, that part was not fair. You know, no, but that wasn't fair at all. But I, I'll tell you, it's funny, a funny story about the guys going in to see if their sweaters hanging or not. So Builder Lego is told one night, he walks in, his sweater's not there. Says the gunner, where's my sweater? He said, um, they didn't tell me to put it up. You're not playing tonight. Billy goes across the street to the Baron, has a steak, a couple of beers, and a glass of wine. Somebody runs over and, Billy, you got to come. Somebody got hurt in the warm-up. You got to play. <laughs> Billy's got like a steak, two beers, and a glass of wine in him. Goes out. I think he had three points, and he was first star that night. <laughs> oh, that's funny, isn't it? And you know what I thought the story you were going to say? Someone just told a story about Bill, same thing, and Billy went in and was riding the bike oh, yeah. with, with, a, with a cigarette oh. in his hand with Brof, right? Yeah. A, a cigarette in one hand, a coffee in the other, and Brof walks in and says, well, if you're not going to try, you may as well go home. So Billy casually got off the bike, said, okay, see you tomorrow. Just walked out. Uh, do, you, do you know what, Mike? Uh, sitting in the dressing room, the leaf room with so much history and stuff. Yeah, it was pretty exciting. There's no I'm question sure about it. it. And and I remember sitting there, and and it's funny the things that stick in your head. Like first of all, I remember that song, Ace Squid. They they play when you go on the ice. I, I I forget what it was called, but they don't play it now. But back then, what is it, Canada Forever or whatever it was. That song would always resonate. Know, you're in asking here. the wrong guy, please. <laughs> okay, but anyway, sitting sitting in the room, sitting in the room, I remember asking uh, Turnbull, "Where's Where's Boria? Where's King? Like we're going on the ice in like two minutes, and in he'd come, and his hair was all disheveled, and he's all over the place. His coat was sideways, and he got dressed like in thirty seconds and went out first star." <laughs> And, and all the guys said, like Booter, Boutet and Butler said to me, who are my wingers? They said, uh, oh, don't worry. Don't worry. The coaches don't even watch. They just ignore him because they know he's going to be in, you know, ready to go, right? But, well, we're, the clock is working against us, Kurtz, and we love having you on. We're going to have to – actually, we're going to have to get you back in the next little while to get you back on and continue with this. But just in the last uh, minute or so – any stories you want to leave with us? I mean, some of the crazy antics you saw on the ice in the minors, but any other crazy stuff you saw throughout the years playing down there or even in the NHL that you'd like to share with the listeners? Um, I'm sure you got a few. Well, there, there's tons of stories in, in uh, American League and the, and the National Hockey League, but um, I was – the one interesting thing when I got traded to Detroit, um, it was so different than Toronto – in one respect, and in another respect, it wasn't. They had a guy named Bruce Norris that was their owner. Yeah, who was a, who was a lot like Harold, except except Bruce was drunk all the time, every day. And I'll never forget him coming into our room, like probably every other game, and hardly able to stand up. And he used to call Reed Larson like Rubberhead, and and we could like think about that, think about that. Like, who does that? Do you think that would happen in today's society, today's league? I don't think so. So there was there was some bizarre stuff like that. And, uh, um, you know, and I, and I remember I remember getting traded 
I got initiated in Toronto. And uh, I remember getting, when I got traded for Jimmy Rutherford, I remember Reed Larson calling Dan Maloney and said, uh, has Kurtz been shaved in Toronto? Dan goes, not to my knowledge. Then I got it again. <laughs> <laughs> so the boys got you. Oh, well, Kurtz, man. Kurtz, we got to thank you so much for joining us today. I mean, it was fantastic. Very enlightening with the LS. And very quickly, your email address, we're going to put it out there for people if they want to get in contact with you and talk some real estate. How did they get yeah. a hold of you? Yeah, they, uh, the email is mark at markcurtain.com. So Perfect. mark at mark and then K-I-R-T-O-N.com. And uh, uh, one thing, one shout out I would like here if I could. Sure. Uh, Sunday's a pretty big day for us from a fundraising standpoint. So uh, I don't know it off by memory here, but if they go to ALS Canada's website and put my name in there, they'll see my page. And we're, we're approaching 80,000 for the month. And uh, the more we get, you know, the more that goes into research. And, uh, um, you know, maybe they can find the magic potion that uh, will keep me going longer into some overtime instead of just the third period. Well, we're looking forward to it. They want you going well into overtime. So, Kurtz, thanks very much yeah, again. Absolutely. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And we'll join you next week.